Hey, as you're finding your seat, we got Casey in the back and he has Bibles. We'd love for you to have a Bible. We'd love to hear those pages flipping. Um, so if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. I know that can feel awkward, but we're just gonna, we'll just go quiet on you for about five minutes as you receive your Bible and uh, stare at you. It won't be that bad. But no, seriously, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Casey has a stack of them, our gift to you. If you have a device, that's okay too. We're going to be in the ESV version, the English standard version. Acts 9 is where we're going to be this morning, continuing in uh, our series through Acts. Last week, man, Jeff just... Uh, Jeff just killed it. I, I listened to the message. It was so good. Um, I almost like turned in my resignation, just said, dude, just take it. There's really no reason for me to do this anymore. Um, it was so good. Talking about the conversion of Saul, really focusing in on mercy and grace, the kind of mercy, the kind of grace that is necessary and is also extended by God through Jesus Christ into our lives so that we might know uh, God, right? Um, and so we see this thing happening with Saul, who on one hand was this super moral guy, right? When you talk about who he was, he was a Pharisee. He was this high-level religious leader. He was sticking to everything that he thought God had been teaching him and teaching people within his religious sect all through these years. And yet he was completely against uh, the people that God were raising up to be his church. So Paul simultaneously saw Paul. I'm, I'm probably going to screw that up the whole time. But Saul simultaneously had this morality and this immorality um, that just completely characterized uh, his, his life, right? And it, and it kind of made us think of, of some of our own experiences with morality and immorality, right? Morality being this thing that just, man, creates a barrier for us. Some of you guys have this barrier of morality, which is actually keeping you from God. And in fact, it's keeping you from God as much as that guy to your left of which immorality is keeping him away from God as a barrier. But we see these two things kind of simultaneously fleshing themselves out in, in Saul. And one of the things that I really loved, Jeff pointed this out, I thought this was fantastic. And we talked about this in, in our community group is, man, we, we get this salvation story, this conversion story from, from Saul. And it's kind of vague, right? You know, he receives the light. He goes blind. He gets escorted into this town. He's blind for three days um, until, the, until these, these scales fall from his eyes and he's prayed for. But we're never really given this moment that like we see like Saul's heart changed, right? We never get this like, well, no, it was on that particular day. Actually, Saul, it was Tuesday at 3.59, you know, p.m. We, we never get those details in scripture. And what that helps us understand is that at some point, God redeems us. He he changes us. He saves us by faith. And all we know is that now we love Jesus and there is the fruit in our life that is evidence now of that love. And so for some of you all that have been thinking, man, I, man, I, don't, I don't know where I'm at with Jesus or I can't pinpoint that time at youth camp where I walked forward or the 18th time I walked forward at youth camp. Like I, I really can't, I can't remember. I can't recall those things. What the conversion of Saul reminds us of is that Jesus saves us in the way that he saves us by drawing us to himself. And the fruit that comes as the result of that is the result of a changed identity. So at some point, Paul saw his identity was changed. And it really all kind of boils down to that, doesn't it? We're going to talk about that this morning. It, it kind of all boils down to identity. In fact, as kids, we become fixed on what? Well, on what we're going to be when we grow up. Maybe you're a kid out there today, and you're like, yeah, I think about that all the time. What am I going to be 
when I grew up. I mean, when I was a kid, I, I, I thought about that like all the time, right? I even made a bet one time with my sister because I, I, I thought I was going to be Spider-Man when I grew up. I mean, I was young. I was like 12, right? I thought I was going to be Spider-Man. And in fact, my sister, my older sister, Kim, kept telling me, you're going to grow out of this. And I said, I will not grow out of this. And she said, okay, I'll make you a bet. I'll bet you $100 by the age of 25 that you will not still be Spider-Man. And I said, you're on. And of course, when I turned 25, I was still Spider-Man. And she wrote me a check for $100. I had the costume. I, I proved it to her. No, but like we do this thing where we, we rehearse identities, right? Um, we dress up like our superheroes. We dress up like princesses, right? And then as we get older, we begin to do it in other ways. We do it in more grown-up ways. We pursue jobs or degrees or sports or vocations, which we think form who we really are. But what we find is that these people we try to become based on what we do don't really help us with who we are. They're not really who we are. And so in a way, it's kind of like Halloween, right? It's kind of like a, a costume party where we, we pretend to be something that we're not but would like to be. But, but none of us are under any illusions, right? None of us think we're the people we dress up like, right? That's called a Renaissance fair, right? Like we don't really think we're those people. I mean, I didn't really think if you guys saw me at Fall Fest this past year that I was Doc Brown from Back to the Future. Like I don't identify as Doc Brown, right? Um, but in a similar way, we, we, we do this in our own lives. We wear the costumes of other identities in our lives. And sometimes they're not even vocational. They're not even something we aspire to be. Sometimes they're identities that are formed from moments things that have happened to us or against us, things that have created wounds and damages in our life. But at the end of the day, at my core, uh, man, I, I'm not really just a husband. I'm not really a dad. I'm not really a pastor or a man with extraordinary taste in baked goods. That's not really who I am at the end of the day. My true identity from birth is that of a, a sinner, Right? that of a sinner, and that presents me with a ton of problems. That presents you with a ton of problems if I just try to gloss it over with job titles. If I try to just gloss it over with degrees or abilities or financial or relationship statuses, right? Now, J.R. Tolkien, you know, he's the guy that wrote uh, Lord of the Rings. He used to talk about this idea that people aren't really creators, right? But they're actually what he called sub-creators because God is the only one who can actually create something from nothing. So in other words, we just, we just use his pre-existing creation, his material to sub-create new things. And in the same way, uh, man, my identity as a pastor, just for one example, is just a sub-identity of who I really am, which is actually a saved sinner, which means that from conception, Man, I needed to actually be saved, listen, from my true identity. I needed to actually be saved by who I actually am and who I actually was. And this is the picture that God gives us of Saul in Acts 9. Saul didn't need to be saved, listen, from being a Pharisee. The problem wasn't that Saul was a Pharisee, right? There were saved Pharisees. He didn't need to be saved from sinning. Christians sin all the time. If you're a Christian, you're just going to be sinning uh, till the day that you meet Jesus. Hopefully sinning less, but sinning nonetheless, right? He needed to be saved from being a sinner. Saul's true identity needed to be transformed into a new identity. And the same thing must happen. 
to you and to me. Our sin, again, it might be more polished than Saul's, right? I don't know, you know, I'm not breathing out threats and murder, you know, at least most Mondays against people, right? But it's equally as condemning. My sin, my morality that I might hold to is equally as condemning as somebody who is distant from God because of their, their immorality. And so this is just kind of the backdrop that we see as Saul comes to know Jesus, as Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus, as he sees this light of Christ and it opens his eyes for the first time. What we're going to look at is what happened on the heels of this changed identity. So let's look down at Acts 9. I'm going to pick back up in 17. We're going to go back a little bit, and then I'm going to read through verse 30. And this is what it says, Acts 9. 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. And for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Let's stop right there for now. This passage tells us how Saul began living out this new identity that was given to him upon conversion. How did he, how did he do it? Well, he did it in two ways. He did it as a saved sinner in a community of saints. How do we do this? How do you live out your new identity? Well, I'm giving you the end at the beginning. You live it out as a saved sinner in a community of saints. Saul's eyes were opened spiritually and physically when we go back to verse 17. So when we talk about eyes, what do we mean? Well, we mean that God opened Paul's mind to the truth that Jesus is the son of God who saves sinners. There's the gospel in a nutshell, right? Right there right? Now, again, that's different than somebody saying Ronnie Martin is the son of John Francis Martin. That was the middle name. I didn't give that one to him. Now, that information doesn't describe a transformed heart or change of status just because you know who I am, but it does indicate a transformed status and identity when you declare that Jesus is the son of God. Now, again, Saul is somebody who had the same eyes, that, that we were born with, which would, he would later describe in his letter to, his, to the Corinthians. This is what he said. He said, the God of this world has blinded minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So what we saw happening here in verse 17 is Saul saw the light of the gospel 
and he believed. Which, by the way, tells us something really remarkable about the light of God and its irresistible quality and ability to search and find lost souls and then bring them to life. What's remarkable about what Saul declares in the synagogue in verse 20 is that this is not some dude who had just gotten on a better path. Can you imagine if that's all he had to say? I, you know, man, I was, I was on a bad path. I've just gotten on a better path now. Prove the diet, getting a little more sun, getting out a little bit, you know, reading, a little th- reading some things that are a little less damaging for me, you know, drinking a little less alcohol. Man, I'm just, I'm cleaning it up. I'm cleaning the act up. I'm on a better path. Paul didn't find a new path. He was found by a person named Jesus who rescued him. By the way, in his sorriest state, out of spiritual blindness that originated in a heart of darkness, in a heart of hardness, right? Some of us have this feeling that we need to take a shower before we approach God because we think it's our dirty face that he's most concerned with, that he's super bummed with. The reason why he sent Jesus was just to like, you know, get a, get a, you know, a wash towel and like wash your dirty face, right? It's kind of like saying that if you brush your teeth before you go to the dentist, the cavity won't be as bad. I used to do that by the way. Obviously your breath is probably going to smell a little bit better and your dentist is going to be super pumped that you made that move, but your cavity has not been dealt with, right? You're deceiving yourself. If you think that by putting some Colgate on your cavity, it actually helps alleviate the pain or it actually helps remove the cavity. You know what else is crazy about this story? Sometimes the pain subsides, right? When you have a cavity until one day it comes back and it's even worse than it was before. But the minute you see a dentist, something magical happens. The cause of the pain is revealed, it's removed, and then the pain is relieved. I know some of you guys haven't had that experience. Let's just keep this general, right? But the pain is how you know you need relief. It's what alerts your mind to know the truth of your condition. 1 John 5, 20, and we know that the Son of God has come, John says, and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. John says, he is the true God and eternal life. So what does this understanding then lead us to like it led Saul to? Well, again, Philippians 2, Saul would later write this, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So something got, something's gotta happen. Work has to happen in you before it can happen through you. And when God's work begins happening through you, God keeps working in you. It's this cycle that happens. The reason why it was so important for Saul's eyes to be opened was so that he could see the person we see when our eyes are opened, which is Jesus. You realize Saul wasn't going on and on about his vision, but about the person he experienced in the vision, right? So listen, you... You are a saved sinner whose mind has been opened, like Paul's, to the face of Jesus Christ. Paul would tell the Corinthian church this in 1 Corinthians 4. He said, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's called illumination right there. Now, some of you guys are going to say, well, hold on, Ronnie. 
I've never seen Jesus like Saul saw Jesus. Are you telling me like you've had that kind of like beatific vision? Well, no, I've not physically seen Jesus. But what we're talking about here is the eyes of our hearts have been opened to receive him as if we've seen him. Peter says in 1 Peter, he says, though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So God opened Saul's eyes and God opens the eyes of our hearts to see that we are sinners who actually need saving. It's the most important realization of any person's life. And by the way, if that is not you, if you've not come to that realization, if you are just playing this morality game, or if you were just someone who's backed up and you're saying, man, I got to clean this up. I got to wash my face. I got to douse some Colgate on my cavity before I see a dentist. You're missing what Paul here was visited by God to reveal to him, which is that we need to be visited by the truth of Jesus invading our hearts to remind us of who we are so that our eyes are open to his beauty and his forgiveness and his glory. Is that making sense? Should I go back over and just do the whole thing? Again, and we got so much time this morning. So Paul's eyes are open. Secondly, Paul's mouth is open. So as God opens Saul's eyes to the truth and beauty and person of Jesus, he opens his mouth. What's the first thing that Saul says? He says, he is the son of God. Maybe, I don't know, maybe the shortest recorded sermon in history. Some of you guys are like, man, why can't you just do that every week? I mean, I do. I just say it like 30 different ways and ends up going 40 minutes, right? But here's the interesting thing. Like, Paul knew his theology, right? Jeff talked about that last week. He knew all the Jewish law, Testament writings and prophecies. He was trained by this brother named Gamaliel, if I'm pronouncing that right. But until God opened his eyes, he lacked the understanding to proclaim it the way that he did, which was Jesus is the son of God. Now, again, this is a man, remember, in verse 1 of chapter 9, how does that open up? It says he's breathing threats and murder against the disciples. Now we're going to look at in verse 20. He is the son of God. So for all of his knowledge of scripture, Saul had this much to say upon conversion. He is the son of God. And you know what? It was enough. It was enough. Later, Paul would even say to the Corinthian church, I want to know nothing other than Christ crucified. This is what everything hangs on. And this helps us to remember something. It helps us to remember that although we need to grow in our knowledge of God's word, we need to grow in that. We need to grow in our defense of the gospel. It essentially, at the end of the day, it boils down to this. Jesus is the son of God. And what will you do with this truth? If you think you got to learn a lot more before you can open up your mouth and share your faith, remember what Paul was saying. He is the son of God. What do we do with this truth? Because whether you're doing something or not doing something, not doing something is doing something. We're all doing something with that truth, right? Like, so when I'm standing there and I'm singing the songs that we just sang and I'm struggling, right? Because my mind is so distracted. I've got all this junk going on. It's saying something about what I believe when it comes to Jesus being the son of God. Because that truth, look what it did to Saul. It has the same effect on you. It has the same effect on me. It's the thing that changes all the other things in our, in our life. He is the son of God. What will you do with this truth? And so what Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, what he's showing us is the courage and confidence that comes when one has been converted 
And when their identity has been completely changed, when the, the worst of sinners, as Saul would someday describe himself, is loved, redeemed, and given a second chance, when that happens, what comes out of their mouths is Jesus. That's what comes out of their mouth, right? I mean, Saul's been saved for what, like an hour here? And these were the words that were already pouring out of him. Now, I mentioned a minute ago that we were on a cruise. The reason why we posted so many pictures of our cruise on Instagram is because we beheld some glorious things that needed to be shared until you were all super annoyed with us, right? We have pictures in our minds of things like stingrays, right? And iguanas that we were ignorant of beforehand. I still wish I was ignorant of those fire-breathing dragons that just walked around uh, Puerto Rico like they own the place. But this is what happened when Jesus invaded Saul on the road to Damascus. This is what happened to you. If you believe in your heart that Jesus is the son of God, you have become something from sinner to saved sinner. Al Mohler, uh, he's the president of Southern Seminary. He described Saul's conversion like this. He said, Saul went from persecutor to preacher. I, I mean, it's a dramatic transformation that happened there. The conversion of Saul, though, it, it should actually serve as an encouragement for us. It should serve as an encouragement for everyone that we think, including ourselves, is too far gone to change, right? Because scripture would tell us something different, right? We think things like this, man, their heart is so hard or their personal life is a train wreck. Ronnie, you should hear what comes out of their mouth. You should see some of their behaviors. You should see who they keep company with. Like God doesn't see all that. Like that's just something that like we have. That's like insider information that God's waiting for us to like, you know, communicate to him, right? The story of Saul is the story, like Jeff pointed out last week, of mercy and grace, which is why Paul wrote what he wrote to the Ephesian church, right? Remember Ephesians chapter two, by grace you've been saved, not a work of your own so that you might not boast, but God rich in mercy saved you by sending Jesus to die for you. So it's true that we might not all be like Saul in terms of our degree of sin, but we're exactly like Saul in how many degrees of mercy and grace we need from Jesus to atone for our sin. We're born with an identity, sinner, and then God transforms us with the light of the gospel and we become saved sinners. But here's what we see happening with Paul in that we were never saved to walk alone, right? We are saved sinners that also are being inducted into a community of saints, which is what this is, a community of saints. Verse 23 tells us that Paul survives a plot by the Jews to kill him. Well, how did he do that? Well, he didn't do it alone, right? It's his community of disciples. This is a brother that has been saved an hour and already has disciples, but it's this community of disciples and saints that lower him in a basket down through the city wall. So his brothers and sisters find a way to deliver him from destruction. Why? Because it wasn't Saul's time to be a martyr, right? God had work for him. It was good for him to flee. He wasn't being reckless, right? He wasn't being reckless like Peter. He said, I will die for you, Lord. Well, no, it wasn't time. It wasn't time for, for Saul to die. There was a lot of work, a lot of ministry. God hadn't even written one of these letters that we go through in the New Testament yet. 
But then when he gets to Jerusalem, we're told he's met with these disciples, these brothers who naturally are afraid of him. I mean, I would have been, right? I'd be thinking this crazy dude is hatching some plot to break into our inner circle and try to wipe us out. I would have been like slightly concerned about that. But then we see this brother named Barnabas who would end up becoming a great friend of Paul's and whose name means, by the way, son of encouragement. He vouches for Saul. He explains the story of his conversion. He says, no, you got to understand. You should see the fruit and the evidence of this brother's conversion. Because Saul proved the authenticity of his faith by preaching boldly in the city. It even says he disputed with this group called the Hellenists, which by the way, if that sounds familiar, it's because these were the ones likely responsible for the killing of Stephen, which again, Saul approved of and was okay with and was happy about. So listen, the transformational power of a saved sinner living in a community of saints, that's you, that's me, is how God emboldens a person for kingdom work. God cultivates the fruit of your salvation in community. He does it within this local community. It's this friendship with this community, this gathering, this collection of saints that allows you to be bold because you now have people who have your back. Now listen, the brothers and sisters around you that have received their new identities in Christ, man, they need your fellowship, right? They need your fellowship just like Saul needed the fellowship of Barnabas and the disciples. They need to be brought into a community of faith. They need to see the authenticity of your faith through your love and through your kindness and through your patience. Why? Because they don't have everything worked out like you, right? Their theology isn't at 100% like you. What they do have like you is a heart beating for Jesus that is now in sync with you, but they need fellowship. They need help figuring out what this Christian life is supposed to look like, right? Can you imagine the questions that come when someone is first coming into uh, the fellowship and the community of the, the saints? Like, what is this church thing that we do? Maybe they're unchurched. Maybe this whole idea of the Sunday morning thing, which doesn't include sleeping until 10 and eating pancakes all morning with a football game on, that's like a foreign concept to them, right? What is this church thing we do? Is it really every week, like forever, right? They need to know that. Is there some initiation fee or some dues I need to pay? Do I need to start acting a certain way? Do I need to start dressing a certain way? Do I need to start talking a certain way? Do these people around me really accept me or are they going to judge me because I don't know all the Christianese? I don't know all the right terminology, all the right words to say. They need fellowship with us so that we can affirm them in their faith. We can answer their questions. We can introduce them to other brothers and sisters. We can show them that authentic Christian community is very different than the world. You know what else? When they become too much like the world, we'll also be a community of authentic flesh and blood, gospel-breathing brothers and sisters to call them back from the brink, show them grace, and call them to repentance. That's part of it too. They need fellowship with us. They need to be discipled by us. So what does that word even mean? Hear the church say that so often, right? Like you need to be discipled. What does disciple mean? Well, it just means that we need to teach one another what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's living out what's called the great commission from Matthew 28. Jesus said this as he was exiting. He told his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Well, what does that mean? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then he just lays this out at the end. And behold, 
not insignificantly, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So we learn something about being with one another because as Jesus promised to be with us to the end of the age, how does he do that? Because he's not here physically. Well, he exists in our hearts via the Holy Spirit, but he exists for us physically through the community of saints that he has brought us in to a particular local location to live out with, to live out this faith with. So that's what he's done for you. That's what he's done for me in terms of us becoming more like Jesus, not just being people who say, I'm a Christian, I grew up in church, but no, 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 this heart change, this identity transformation, learning how to live these things out, the joy of Christ that has saved me. How do I do that? I don't know. I need you to help me. And I literally mean that. I need you to help me do that. The thing is, is that everyone knew what Saul had done, right? I mean, this dude had a rep. I mean, I can't imagine the amount of people who struggle with Saul because he was the one who approved of Stephen's death. Can you imagine how hard it probably was for some people to get past that? Maybe it took some people years to get past that. But this is how the church that Jesus builds is built up. When someone receives a new identity in Christ, they need forgiveness, they need building up, they need instruction, they need encouragement, they need knowledge. So then the question that becomes here is how do you play into that? How do I play into this? Well, we play into it by investing in younger believers in the faith. How? Well, here's a few ways. Maybe you want to write this down. Here's a few ways that we invest in younger believers in the faith. Here's a way that we invest in older believers in the faith. Number one is we encourage them. We pray with them. We read scripture with them. We do our best to answer questions that they have. And we ask them questions about the questions that they might have. We let them see what sanctification looks like, whether we've been saved for a month, six months, a year, two years, 20 years. We allow them to get a picture of what a saint looks like who has walked with Jesus for whatever amount of time. And in that way, we are also giving them a glimpse of spiritual maturity, right? This is not just a one and done faith. This is a faith that grows and maturates in us. We show them what going through trials looks like. This is what it was like for me when I faced one of the hardest moments of my life or one of the hardest years of my life. We give them a picture, if they're single, of what a gospel marriage looks like, right? with all of its warts, right? With all of its reconciliations, with all of its compromises, with all of its faithfulnesses. We give them a picture of how to live a godly life as a single man or a single woman. Not saying that these are people in our church that are just on hold until they get married and that they're not living quite the life that they are going to be living someday until they get married. No, we don't preach that. And that's not biblical and it flies in the face of who Jesus Christ was on this earth. So if you're a single man or woman, we need you to not just be in weight, in holding, but we need you to teach us what it looks like for you to walk with the Lord as a single person. You need to teach single people what it looks like to walk with the Lord as a single person. We need to show them how a Christian stewards their money. 
Do we use money like the world uses money? Do we look at money the way the world looks at money? I mean, the, the answer to that is yes, but we need people to help us see it through a redeemed lens, a sanctified lens. We need to let them see how Christians resolve conflict. And not that Christians ever have conflict. Obviously, I'm just speaking like something mythical right now, right? But no, Christians obviously have conflict. And how do Christians resolve conflict? We have to show them how Christians forgive like Jesus when they're facing conflict. You need to share with believers how you struggle through dark times. What do you do? Where do you go? What does your medication look like? Where do you find yourself when you are feeling like you have hit rock bottom and you're at your lowest? How can you help them? How can you invest in younger believers? Because your love and acceptance might be the first tangible way that they feel the love and acceptance of Jesus. That's not to say we just excuse sin. So you always have to qualify that now, right? When you say love and acceptance. Well, Ronnie, what if they're on a path? You know, it's like, well, what that means is you have patience with where God has brought them from, trusting where God is bringing them to through the love and acceptance that you're giving them in the moment. Does that make sense? It doesn't mean that we don't call out sin. No, I mean, we talk about sin so much as this church, like I feel like sometimes I gotta rein that in. I'm not gonna rein it in. But love and acceptance, because remember, they're saints just like you. And remember, they're sheep just like you, right? The eyes of their hearts have seen Jesus. But it's your love, it's your knowledge, it's your wisdom that helps put Jesus in sharper focus for them since they have infant eyes that have just been opened. So if you were to look at my story, you would just see, man, teachers, mentors, friends, this just unique cast of characters that God assembled that have contributed to the story of my life for both good and bad at the same time. Some of you are in this room, right? But if you were to go back far enough, you would have seen my first moment being mentored by a junior high youth pastor. I don't remember this brother's name. So dude, if you're listening to this podcast and you know who I am, I would love for you to reach out and we can connect. But this is a dude that spent time with me. He was patient with me. He showed me some love. I remember when I got into high school, a man named Bill Corson, who I was just talking to two days ago. This dude just came into my life at a moment when I was a teenager and everything was confused and mixed up, um, which can tend to happen as a teenager, right? Um, and this is a brother that just invested in my life, showed me what it would look like for me as a teenager to walk with Jesus, facing all the crazy temptations that kid, kids faced, you know, in the 80s, right? You know, because, you know, Cindy Lauper was on the radio, right? So we had all that kind of stuff, right? Some of you guys get that. Other, others, you are looking at me like the old guy being, not being very contextual. Um, but this guy changed my life by showing me what it would look like someday when I was 35, still walking with Jesus and maybe had a wife and some children, right? I remember a guy named Robert Campbell almost 20 years ago, a pastor at a church that we started attending and I remember sitting down with him for that first cup of coffee. And I remember, man, we were like two minutes into this convo. And this brother looks at me and goes, what are you doing? And I looked around. I said, are you, me? He said, why do you think what you think about the things you think about? And I said, dude, can, 
can I like put sugar in my coffee before we get in to all this stuff, you know? But he just went there with me and he brought questions up into my mind, into my heart. He allowed me to start processing things that I'd never thought of in my Christian faith. He kind of brought me from this nominalism that had characterized my life. He brought Jesus after I'd been a believer for 20 years into sharper focus of my life. He invested, he took time, Robert Campbell. I remember Jeff Powell. Man, this, me and Jeff now go back, I don't know, seven or eight years now. But I remember meeting him at a particular moment in my life. And man, I've learned so much from Jeff. I've learned how to cultivate consistency in my life. I've learned how to be patient. I've learned how to live out wisdom to the degree that I'm able to live it out. In my, in my journey, in my sanctification. I've learned so much from him. I remember an author, a guy by the name of Dave Harvey, who we had the pleasure of meeting, and he started investing in my life. He started um, caring about some of the things that I was going through, parenting an older child and some of the challenges of that. And knowing that he had kids the same age as Melissa and I, and for him and his wife to sit down with us and tell us we're not crazy and tell us we're crazy, right, about some things. I mean, how helpful was that? I mean, some of the things he's told me, um, I've told some of you, you guys thought those were my words. It wasn't, I was just ripping those off from Dave Harvey, you know, so I, a lot of plagiarism going on here, obviously. Um, but, but what a change he made in my life. You guys remember um, Michael Crawford, African-American brother of mine, one of my closest friends. We've had him out here to preach a couple times. He came into my life a few years ago and he just has really taught me what the Christian life looks like as a pastor as a, as a church planner approaching 50 years old. And let me tell you how surreal it is to even say those words. I hear Tammy Van Hove laughing very happily at that. But this is a brother that has helped me. I need help. He's invested in me. There is not a person in this room that cannot benefit from your investment. Why? Because you are in a community of saints as saved sinners. That's your new identity. What happened to Saul's heart is what has happened to yours. You now have understanding. You now have, you now have knowledge of God's glory. You now have the spirit of the living God living inside of you. You are one with Saul that can declare these words. He is the son of God. So remembering that you're a saved sinner, boy, it keeps you humble, doesn't it? It kept Paul humble. He remembered his roots all the way through his ministry. As he wrote those letters to the churches, he remembered where he came from. But remembering you're in a community of saints, it keeps you loving and long-suffering with those who are newly adopted into the family of faith. So we need to remember that we're saved sinners to stay humble, but that we're in a community of saints so we can stay loving and long-suffering with our brothers and sisters. What would it look like for us to embrace this identity like Saul embraced and not just embraced, right? Not just like it's just a, a nice huggy blanket keeping us warm, but embraced it and lived it out like Saul. We got it right here. This is what happens in verse 31 of chapter nine. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So this is the end game for the church that Jesus builds. Having peace, being built up, walking in the fear of the Lord, the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and multiplying. 
Is that going to be any different for us than it was for those churches back then? No, it can't be because this is the work that Jesus is intent on fulfilling and he will fulfill that work. Our prayer needs to be that he fulfills that work in us over time as saved sinners in a community of saints at Substance Church. So as we eat the bread and drink the cup, which we're going to do here in one minute, this is an acknowledgement. We're making an acknowledgement, right, that our identities have been altered by the death of Christ and we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's guaranteed, right? So together, as saved sinners in a community of saints, we collectively receive the reality of some things. What's the reality? Listen, it's the reality of Christ's presence. Christ is in our presence when we're taking of these elements. The elements aren't magic, but the presence of Christ is real. And there's a mystery to that. We don't totally understand it. But we receive the reality of his presence, the reality of his strength. Maybe you're weak this morning. Let the assurance that you receive, that you're reminded of when you eat the bread and you drink the cup, let it remind you of who has saved you and who is walking alongside of you. Let it strengthen you. We also receive the reality of Christ's righteousness. The reason why we're called saints is not because, man, you know, we've just, we kill it. We kill it with kindness. No, the reason we're called saints is because of the work that Jesus did to make us so, to give us that identity, to give us that title. So what we're going to do here right now is we're going to remember the glory of God in the face of Jesus once again. And God is going to do something in our hearts as we sit back for a minute and we let a measure of sobriety come over us. And we bow our heads and we say, Lord, I know there are things in my heart that aren't right. I want to confess those things. I want to repent of those things. I want to give those things to you. It's also going to remind you that maybe you have some brothers and sisters in your life that you need to do some work on in terms of reconciliation and repentance. You need to resolve some things. So we need to let this act humble our hearts. And again, this is why communion is something reserved for those who identify as believers, who identify as saved sinners in a community of saints. There's no shame if you're somebody who can say, I'm not quite there yet, and you remain seated. We would encourage you to do that. We would encourage you to meditate on these words. I'd also encourage you to come up and, um, man, just give, give me a shout and a holler at the end of the service. I would love to pray with you. I'd love to hear your story. I'd love to talk with you about these things that maybe were said this morning that just created like so many questions and maybe created some chaos and confusion in your heart. Let's talk about that. All right, I'm going to pray. The ushers are going to come up while I'm praying and then we're going to receive together.